it was funny reading, so I'm rereading Exodus as I'm preaching through this passage, and literally the words that come out of the children of Israel's mouth are like the words that come out of my children's mouth every single day with the same tone of voice. <laughs> but why didn't you give us this? That's what we wanted. Uh, friends, we're in a sermon series on the book of Exodus. So we started back with Genesis in January, and we've been working our way through the story to get a grounding in what the core concepts of the biblical story are, because this is the same story in which you and I are living. So we started back in Genesis with this idea that God created the world to be his temple, his dwelling place. He created us as his image bearers to dwell with him, to represent him to creation. We were to bear his image to the created order. And then in Genesis 3, all of that got broken, and God's good designs got broken, and God was separated from creation and from his image bearers. And there was a brokenness between God and human, between human and human, and between human and creation. And then that brokenness snowballed into the brokenness that we see today. Um, and so gr- the whole story of the scriptures is God's story of how he is going to fix what has been broken, uh, how he is going to again recreate this, or- this earth as his home and us as his image bearers. And I'm going a little bit more into detail about that part of it because we're going to see a very exciting step forward in the plan happen today as we uh, figure out what God is doing in Exodus. So as you trace forward the story, we see that God narrowed in on a particular family, Abraham. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, those 12 sons became the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes of Israel went to Egypt and were enslaved. God rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and then God set about in the second half of Exodus, making them into his people. You are my people. I am your God. You are my people. You will be my treasured possession among the earth. You will be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so where we are now is we are in where God is taking this people and he's molding them into his people. And so the this title of the sermon series, we're calling it Lessons in Freedom, because we all know it's super exciting to escape from the bad guy, but what does it look like to live free? And for Christians, the parallel is that uh, Christians have seen Exodus as a paradigm for our spiritual journey, that we were all enslaved to the power of sin and death, and through the work of our Passover lamb, Jesus, we were rescued from that slavery to sin and death, and now we are to inherit the freedom of the new creation. But what does that freedom look like? What does that freedom look like? The end of the story is not giving your heart to Jesus. That's the beginning of the story, and after that comes freedom. And what does freedom look like? This morning, we are going to get to one of the most important parts of that lesson. Where we've been over the last couple of weeks, we've had a lesson in enough, the manna lesson. We've had a lesson in law, a lesson in covenant. All of those sermons are on the website, and they all kind of build on one another. And they build this week and next week are going to be two of the most significant in this story. Because these two deal specifically with the theme of God's presence. The theme of God's presence. So... In the covenant, God said, I promise I will be your God and you will be my people. And inherent in that promise is God actually showing up. God actually showing up. And today, we are very fond of saying, well, God is everywhere. And you know what? God is everywhere. He's got this line, the whole earth is mine, and yet you are my treasured possession. What we're going to see in the witness of the Old Testament and actually the New Testament 
starting here especially, is that while it is theologically true to say God is everywhere, there does seem to be something about the presence of God, that the presence of God can show up powerfully in a particular place, in a particular time, in a particular way. To where it is true to say that there is air everywhere, and yet you feel it differently when you're in a tornado. Correct? It is true to say that there is water everywhere, There are molecules of water everywhere, and yet you feel it differently when you are in the rain. And so it is true to say the presence of God is everywhere, and yet somehow what we're going to see in Exodus is that the presence of God shows up particularly. And and so the first place we really see this um, God shows up in the burning bush to Moses, and then when he rescues the people from Egypt, God leads them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and remember that because those are going to be the two symbols of the presence of God, cloud and fire. He leads them. He blocks Pharaoh from following them across the Red Sea, and then he leads them through the desert to Sinai. And when they get to Sinai, cloud and fire cover the mountain, and Moses goes up to receive the law, and that is the symbol that the presence of God is there. And throughout the book, you have God saying, I want to show up in person. I'm going to, I am going to treat this differently because you are going to be my people and I am going to be your God. Now, if I just stopped there, this would sound like a very lovely story, right? I mean, who doesn't want to be in the presence of God, right? I'm sure as I'm saying this, some of you are remembering a time that you've been in worship and you've had a really strong feeling in your heart, or maybe a time you've been in nature and you've looked at the stars or the trees and you've had a really a feeling of awe and you're thinking, oh, the presence of God. So here's the difficulty. Exodus gives us a very different picture of the presence of God than the sentimental one that you and I are used to associating with that phrase. Exodus shows us that the the presence of God is in some ways actually extremely dangerous. (laughs) Extremely dangerous, not bad, but dangerous. Because something seems to have changed after Eden. So when God's presence comes down to Sinai, God says, draw a boundary around the the mountain and so that nobody comes close because anybody who gets too close is going to be consumed by the presence of the Lord. The image is like dry wood, dry wood. Dry wood might love a fire, but what's going to happen when dry wood gets too close to a fire? It's going to be consumed. And then later when God sets about the work of building his house, which is called the tabernacle, half of the law in Exodus is building the tabernacle. There are three different spaces to set up protections against people getting too close to the presence of God. Because if they are not prepared, if they are not righteous, if they are not the right person and they enter the presence of God, they could get struck down. And actually, there is some language in Exodus about God becoming angry and striking people down, but most of the language just seems to be that God's like, I'm a fire, you're wood, stay away for your own good. Right? And so these levels of protection that are set up to keep people from encountering what they are not capable of encountering without being consumed by it. And it's not universally true. Moses seems to be able to be at least partly in the presence of God. But normal, ordinary, fallen people seem to find the presence of God something that is destroying rather than life-giving. The implication, the implication is what we've talked about already. There was a change with Genesis 3. 
In Genesis 1 and 2, the man and the woman walks in the, pre- within the garden with God, right? There's this line, in the cool of the evening, the man and the woman walked with God in the garden. They were capable of being in the presence of God. They were designed to be in the presence of God. They were supposed to be in the presence of God. And yet, something happened after Genesis 3, whereby they became shadows of what they were supposed to be. And being shadows of what they were supposed to be, they were not capable of experiencing the full presence of the one who had actually given them life. Dry wood might love a fire, but if dry wood comes into a fire, it's going to be consumed. So C.S. Lewis actually uses this analogy. He, uh, he wrote this book called The Great Divorce, which is a thought experiment. What if heaven is like this? What if hell is like this? And it's not actually meant to be theologically completely sound. It's meant to be a thought experiment. But his thought experiment, this person goes to heaven but they're not prepared for heaven, and it's painful because the description of the person who's going to heaven is that he said, everything is like I expected it to be, but more real. And so when I step on the grass, it hurts because my foot is not real enough, and the grass feels like sharp blades in my foot. The sun hurts. The light hurts. Everything about this place hurts because I'm not... I'm not I have a shadow body, and this place is fully real. That's about the image that we're getting in Exodus. The presence of God is fully real. The presence of God is there. People who are fallen, fallen image bearers, a shadow of what we were meant to be, are not ready to come into that presence. The image that came to my mind as I was, as I was thinking through what this actually meant, I want you to imagine a two-year-old and you give him a ticket to Disney World. And you're like, have fun, kiddo. Now, Disney World's an amazing place. Disney World could be, especially for kids, and yet the very nature of a two-year-old is that he is not likely to find it enjoyable. He is not likely to find it enjoyable. In fact, my two-year-old would very quickly kill himself. He would find something and he would injure himself within five minutes and then it would be miserable for him. This, and it's not the fault of the place, it's the fault of the, the person. It's the person is not ready to be in that place. The fallen cre- image bearers, because of the effects of Genesis 3, are not ready to be in the presence of God. Moses is the exception. Moses received this vision from God. Moses has been being trained by God. Moses has been being grown in holiness and righteousness. Moses has gotten to a place where he can be in the presence of God and bring that word to the people. But most of humanity is not ready to be in the presence of God. Um, There's a second half of this message, but I want to pause there for a second because I I want to... What this shows us is that the effects of Genesis 3 are real, are real and tangible and spiritually something that actually affects the human person. So when we talk about the brokenness of Genesis 3, when we talk about the fallenness of the world, it can seem very surreal, right? It can seem very cerebral, something we keep at arm's length. And what we're seeing here in this passage is that it is... It's, it's, it's life and death, right? It's the difference between dry wood 
and not dry wood, right? There's an actual ontological difference that happens between a person who is able to come into the presence of God and a person who is not able to come in the presence of God. And that is a real difference that for the people who are living at this time meant life or death. In fact, in the tabernacle that was set up to be the worship place of God, when the priest, who was the only one who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, which was where the presence of God dwelt, once a year he would go in to offer worship at the Holy of Holies, and they would tie a rope around his waist in case he was killed when he was in there, so that they could pull him out without having other people go in. I would like to suggest to you that those of us who have a very hallmark, sentimental notion of the presence of God didn't get it from the Bible. We didn't get it from the Bible. We got it maybe from Christian movies. We got it maybe from arts. We got it maybe from other places. But the Bible shows us a picture of the presence of God that should make us What's the word? Reverent? What what does the phrase fear of the Lord mean to you? Right? What does the phrase fear of the Lord mean to you? It doesn't mean we're terrified because this is a good God, but are you ready? Are you ready to stand in the face of a fiery furnace and trust that you're not going to be burned up? Are Are you righteous? Are you holy? And for most of us, because we are also children of Genesis 3, we are also grown up in a broken world, the answer, honestly, in the depths of our hearts is no, no, we are not. We can worship from a distance, but we are not people who can stand in the consuming presence of the Lord. Which brings me to the second half of of the message. So the the image of presence that goes throughout Exodus is that the presence of God is like a, a sun, like a fiery furnace. And yet, the presence of God is so determined to dwell with the people, to bring them back to him, to bring them back into people who are capable of being in his presence because they were meant to be in his presence, that he sets up a way for it to happen. And so because of that, we have the worship of the tabernacle. And this is, um, remember when I, (laughs) I made the joke last week that if you read through the Bible, this is where you stopped? Um, I, I, I remember as a child being like, Mom, I'm going to read through the entire Bible. And I remember the chapter I stopped, and it was the building of the tabernacle in Exodus. Um, because after a few chapters of three cubits of purple lemon, there's just so much you can take. Um, several chapters, once you get into the law, you get into the law, and then there's this turn. And then chapter after chapter after chapter, where God describes the tabernacle and what worship is supposed to look like. And the tabernacle is very, very specifically um, prescribed. There are priests. There are different rooms. There is an outer courtyard where people are going to bring sacrifice. There is a holy place where the priests are going to come, and the priests are going to see things that remind them of the presence of God. They're going to see a seven-branch lampstand that reminds them God is perfect. They're going to see a... um, a table with the bread of the presence that's going to remind them that God um, provides for them. They're going to see a light that never goes out that's going to remind them of the eternal presence of God. And they're going to offer incense as a worship there. And then in the middle part was a place called the Holy of Holies. So there are three rooms, the outer courtyard, the holy place, the Holy of Holies. The inner courtyard, the inner Holy of Holies, was an empty room except for this Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was to have the law 
a plain box and a gold seat on top of it that stood as the throne of God. It was called the mercy seat. Angels on either side, gold seat, box, that is it. And the image, and this is more than an image, it was considered literally true. This was the throne of God. God had come back to reclaim the earth. God had come back to make a foothold in enemy territory to retake what was his, and this is how he was going to do it. He was going to sit on his throne in the Holy of Holies, and the priests were going to worship in the holy place, and then everyone else could come to worship in the outer courtyard, and through that, the holiness of God was going to begin his work of retaking the earth and reclaiming what was his. Now, how did that actually work for people? You remember I said that Moses was able to come in the presence of God. So what was it that God was having the people do to enable them to grow into people who could come in the presence of God? And if you look at what was commanded, it was all various versions of sacrifice and offerings. Various versions of sacrifice and offerings. So in the outer courtyard, they would have animal sacrifices. In the holy place, they would have sacrifices of incense and every time you came to worship, whether you were a priest or a person, you would bring something to offer it to God, and that would be your worship, and that would be how you lived in good covenant with God. When you look in the Old Testament, the word worship is synonymous with the word sacrifice, because that's what they meant. That's what they meant. When you're coming to worship, you're coming to bring something to God. Now, the reason I think this is important is when you and I use the word worship, we mean singing. And there's nothing wrong with singing, right? I'm going to worship, meaning I'm going to give my energy and my emotions and my spiritual energy to God because I am so much more sophisticated than people who used to bring sacrifices for worship. We are so much more sophisticated that worship for us is something that happens in our heads and our hearts and not something that happens with what we bring. And here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with that. I, we're going to go someplace with this in the New Testament, right? So all of these themes get developed in the Old Testament, and they transition, and they transform when we come to the New Testament. Friends, the theme of sacrifice never goes away. Because when we come into the New Testament, when Jesus invites people to join the kingdom of God, he says, take up your cross and follow me. When Jesus invites people to come into this new movement, this new creation, this new covenant of what God is doing, he doesn't say, give me a really good feeling in your heart. He says, take up your cross and follow me. He says, give me everything you have. Give me everything you have, and you will inherit the kingdom of God. Give me everything you have, and you will be a part of the most exciting movement on the face of the earth. And the reason I think Jesus says that is because he is standing firmly in the tradition that was established back in Exodus and goes throughout the Old Testament is that human beings grow in spiritual maturity when we start to offer back to God a little bit of what God has offered to us. When we start to become people who actually cost whose faith actually costs us something, we begin to become people who are more capable, more holy, more righteous. And if that sounds old and archaic to you, I would suggest that everything you consider important in your life is something that requires a sacrifice of you. 
every single thing. If your job is important, I guarantee you, you make sacrifices for it. If your family is important, you make sacrifices for it. If you have a hobby that is important, you make sacrifices for it. The only things that you do not sacrifice for in your life are things that you fundamentally in your heart of hearts think are not important. If it costs you nothing, it means nothing to you. If it costs you nothing, it means nothing to you. And I think one of the words that is coming to this from the ancient pages of Exodus is, my brothers and sisters, as you and I are called to be spiritually free, to be children of God, to be people who live in the freedom of Christ, we have not outgrown the ancient law that if our faith costs us nothing, we are still toddlers. If our faith costs us nothing, we are still dry wood expecting that coming into the presence of God will be nothing more than a warm, fuzzy feeling in our heart when, in fact, we run the risk of being two-year-olds dropped off in Disney World. When I was preparing the sermon, there was an, an image that came into my head, an image. And it was when my son was first born. He was a pandemic baby, May of 2020. And I remember I was, I have a, his sister is two years older than, she, than he is, and so I was thinking about Annabelle, because I'm so deeply in love with Annabelle, I can't imagine. Now, I'm thinking more about how this baby's going to affect her than I'm thinking about the baby, and I remember the moment they put him on my chest, I looked at his little face, and my first thought was, who are you? Because it didn't look anything like I'd expected, right? You kind of have this image of who's in your tummy, and you see him, and you're like, no, that's not the right baby. Um, and I didn't, when I held him, I was thinking about Annabelle and I was thinking, how is Annabelle going to adjust to having a new baby? And I didn't have that feeling, sorry, this has turned into confessions of motherhood. I didn't have that feeling of like overwhelming love that they say mothers are supposed to have. So here's what happened. That baby required 110% of my effort partially because he's a baby and partially because he's my baby. <laughs> and I had to nurse him, and I had to clean him, and I had to bathe him. And I had to, he, was, he has been a mama's boy his whole life, and so I had to keep him with me, and especially since it was a pandemic and it was like a maternity leave for the whole globe, right? So we all stayed home for about four months, and he spent literally four months on my lap, um, the amount of time I spent loving him made me fall in love with him. And it didn't take very long. It took about a week, maybe. But the amount of time I spent nursing and cleaning and changing and playing and cooling and laughing, all of a sudden I realized that my heart that I thought was big enough for one child had grown. And in fact, my love had not been divided, it had been multiplied. And now there was space for two children that I loved more than life itself. In fact, what I came to understand was that the act of mothering was what made me a mother. The act of loving is what made me fall in love. The act of sacrifice, of giving, is what made that relationship be what that relationship is supposed to be. Friends, everything in your life that matters costs you something. Everything in your life that matters costs you something. And there's no reason to think that faith should be any different. In fact, if you do think it should be different, 
there is a strong possibility that you are just really, really good at denial. And the danger is that you and I could go through this life feeling some nice fuzzy feelings in our heart every now and then. But in reality, we are actually spiritual toddlers. And the danger is, friends, you don't want to get dropped off in Disney World as a toddler. You don't want to get dropped off in Disney World as a toddler. The call of Jesus, take up your cross and follow me. The call of Exodus, bring the sacrifice, bring the offering into my tabernacle, is not something because God needs our stuff. It's because sacrifice is how we are made into the people we are meant to be. Offering is how we become the people we are meant to be. And that's why tithing is a spiritual discipline. It's not because the church needs your money. It's because you're going to worship it if you don't give some of it away. It's why serving is a spiritual discipline. It's because you're going to worship it if you don't give some of it away. It's because everything we talk about you doing, it's because the movement of God is to create a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a kingdom of saints who worship in the presence of God without being consumed. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty, holy God, you have offered us so much. You have invited us into your story. You invited us into this, this process of transformation. You've invited us into this journey. You've invited us into your kingdom and into your, your movement. And God, we confess that there are times we have been satisfied with spiritual immaturity. We confess there have been times that we are so worried about what you are going to cost us that we don't even notice what it will cost us if we don't follow you. And so forgive us, we pray. Take our eyes off the idols of the world and put them on you that we may become people who joyfully, willingly, wholly give just as you have given to us. This we pray as we say together the prayer our Lord taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and glory forever. Amen.